Hi, I'm Keegan. Welcome back to another GM Talks. I am joined by my lovely assistant, Brennan. And you know but we're both lovely because we don't show our faces. We're joined by Josh Lindquist, a buddy of mine from college, and I'll just have Josh introduce himself. Hey, how's it going, everyone? My name is Josh Lindquist. I'm a writer and producer out in California, living in Los Angeles, grew up in Colorado, and uh, I love being a DM as well as a player and uh, all things gaming. So, uh, what? Ga- so you said you were uh, before the show started that you're going to be in an all Zoom game. Is that D and D or is that a different system? Uh, it is actually fifth edition D and D. Yeah, and it's uh, we've gone. I think we've had four sessions now. Play about three hours per session, and uh, everyone's remote. Uh, well, there are a few couples in the group, so they're each on their own screen in the same household. But um, it's a pretty big party, nine players um, total. So, but it actually runs pretty smoothly. We use uh, D&D Beyond for a lot of the roles, and uh, it's my buddy's first time DMing. So uh, that's been, he, you know, he's um, doing really good, uh, uh, kind of still finding his own style of DMing, but it's been really fun. Oh, very cool. Uh, so with Zoom, since we do it over Discord and we don't actually show the camera because that eats up a lot of bandwidth, uh, how you feel? Uh, have you done it with audio only, and, or do do you think the camera and the video really helps when running a remote game? So actually, um, and I, I misspoke. I always do this. I get them confused. Uh, we use uh, Discord as well. Um, so I like to do the video function, and um, the DM is on video, but pretty much all the other players are audio only. And uh, so I think the video for the DM sometimes is helpful for him to describe things or gesture, you know. Um, but for the players being audio only, it uh, hasn't really been a hindrance that we've noticed. So That's actually something I've run into in a game I'm running now. Uh, I find myself gesturing and the message doesn't get across, so I have to start describing my hand motions. <laughs> or like, uh, it forces you to do more description if you don't have that face-to-face. I didn't think about that. That's a good point if, uh, if it forces you to be a little more descriptive. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. Our, our DM, he's had a few times where he's had a little bit of issues with bandwidth and he's gone to audio only, but for the majority of the time, it's been video and it's been helpful to have him on there on screen. So I think a part of it for me, too, is uh, with the podcast and uh, the Werewolf games specifically, since that's the one that we started with, is I would still do the hand gestures because we were in the, the room together initially, but because that was still not getting translated over to the audio... I do feel like some of our earlier episodes are a little more disjointed and some things yeah, lost some things uh, are lost in translation. Uh, yeah, totally. Play, yeah, I understand. When you play Josh, uh, if for the voice only people, do you find that people uh, start talking at the same time or is there a good rhythm with how the party interacts? That's a little more... So most of our players in the group are new, so I think they're not... I think if we had more experienced players, there would be issues of, um, you know, people talking at the same time or kind of getting a little bit confusing there. But since we have kind of a quiet, more timid group, because for most of the people there, it's their first time. It's done pretty smoothly, but that's uh, an issue we haven't had to face yet. So, Mm. Yeah, we get a little bit of that. I think uh, once you get down to it, people are better. And then usually what happens is is that if you have experienced people on audio only, uh, two or three people will talk at once, but if you have a good group, what they do is they defer to the person who's talked the least that session, and then that person talks first and gets their point across first. Hmm. That's a good way of doing it. I like that. Uh, How about uh, private messages in Discord? Does your GM, or have you ever, uh, running remotely, used private messages to give information to individual players so that it's not spoiled for anyone else? Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite things about doing remotely, actually, because as a DM, I enjoy doing that. And then uh, as a player, I like being able to do that as well. So we have done uh, individual messages and stuff, player to player, player to DM, definitely. Oh, yeah, no, I, I've i gotten a couple private messages while running Werewolf. Uh, I've also sent private messages to them so that it's not reiterated, so that I don't either have to edit out what I'm saying just so that there's some coherence to the story. Or, uh, you know, I tell the person what they see, and then they just regurgitate what I said, instead of them 
expressing what they've just seen in character. It's kind of the notes at the table system. Yeah, it's a, but no, even notes at the table. It's uh, right. A, I write slow. Uh, I type much faster than I handwrite, and two, and if I pr- pull out my phone and text someone in the middle of the game, that that also gives it away. Yeah, that's why I like when everyone's remote. It, it feels more. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? It feels more stealthy, you know? So uh, people aren't sitting there going, what's he saying to that player, you know? Yeah, immersive. (laughs) Yeah, so that's that's one of the pros of the remote playing. So I I was going to ask you guys, do you have any experience with, uh, like, screen sharing for maps when you're playing remotely? Uh, I don't, um, mainly because I do a lot more theater of the mind. For certain games, I know that's not as good. Like I had a whole dungeon in Pugmire and actually on the video side of that uh, that Pugmire episode is I revealed chunks of the map as they discovered it in the YouTube video, but the audio only version that's on archive that's lost. And so people have to put the the tomb together in their own head. Hey Brennan, you're, you're, you're picking up something. Sorry. You eating chips again? It's actually a treasure trove of Allen wrenches. Oh. So not potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> Don't shame me. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. As far as screen sharing, uh, only one I've done is uh, I'm playing in Lost Minds of Hemdelver right now, and we're using Roll20. Um, and the GM does that, and she is far braver than I, because <laughs> Roll20 is kind of daunting. But. Yeah, I haven't used Roll20. I've used D&D Beyond, the remote game that we're in right now. It's my buddy's first time DMing, and he's uh, he's done maps for a couple combat encounters, but it's time-consuming to... I forget what website he uses, but uh, it's time-consuming to coordinate with the players moving around on there and him to share his screen. So we've, uh, we've been avoiding that more as we've gone on. Uh, I think that's the benefit of... Uh, roll 20 right is you all get the same screen uh projected to you the issue is is that there's just so many tools that uh like my it makes my head spin and i don't i don't have the time really to learn it like i've tried a little bit here and there especially with games as they come up uh, that are a little more exploratory or old school D where the dungeon component is a much bigger component of it yeah definitely that's why I said uh, she's far braver than I, because it's it's a, another level of learning. Like um, uh, another game I'm running is with mostly new players, and I just I don't want them to learn the game and also learn the uh, um, program. Plus, I don't want to learn it because I'm a luddite. Well, yeah, it's it's, a, it's it's not a not necessarily a a new creative skill. You know, it's very. Uh, you know, it's like map making, you know, which when you're doing it in person, you can just draw something quick. It doesn't have to look good. You can just get your point across. But when it's on the computer, there's that extra barrier there. So I definitely understand the hesitation as well. And I heard there, there's other tools that make it easier. I, I heard D&D Beyond has a, has a map making feature, doesn't it? To allow everyone there with like fog of war and things like that. I think so, but we haven't used that. We mainly actually the one cool thing about D and D Beyond is that um, we have our character sheets on there, and then in our Discord, uh, in our like text chat channel, um, if you put in like uh, a few certain characters, it knows which character you're playing, and it'll do all the modifiers for you and roll, and everyone can see the dice roll results. So that's been pretty cool. Mm. That's cool. Uh, I saw one. I think it was roll twenty. It might have been D&D Beyond. Uh, or no, it was Virtual Tabletop. I'd watched a video where someone was showing Virtual Tabletop, and you could select what languages everyone knew. And so you could say something to an, a PC in a language they wouldn't know, and it would give them in the text field, and the text field would come back garbled. And anyone who understood the language, it would say, it's this language, and then just have it in plain English. That's amazing. That's a really cool feature. That's fun. And, and that was on Roll20, you said? I th- no, that one was on Virtual Tabletop. Oh, okay. I don't have any experience with Virtual Tabletop. But that's a really cool concept. I like that a lot. So what are you playing in your game? 
Oh, uh, in this game, I'm an artificier, which I've never played that class before. So that's been super fun. Mm. Yep. He's a half elf. And uh, yeah, it's been a good time. So with a, with a big group, though, we have like nine players. Um, there hasn't been too much role playing yet. Like I have an idea of who the character is, but it's been a, it's been fairly combat heavy so far. But I think there's going to be more time for role playing as people get more comfortable with their characters and the process, and as the DM just kind of gets comfortable with his own process as well. Yeah, we uh, we did a Dungeon Crawl Classics game over Discord. I think uh, we invited you, and you had to drop out of that one, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, those a couple people they uh, they weren't too comfortable. They weren't quite into it because Brennan was uh, getting into it, and he was trying to lead the way, so to speak. And then towards the end of the game is when everyone was starting to really start to feel their characters and. It ended with a betrayal, and, and Ooh, well, I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah, they, they, it was a TPK. <laughs> oh wow! Don't see those too often. Oh, in Dungeon fun. Crawl Classics, you do. <laughs> not, not, not to be petty, I just want to say I lived. I just got turned into a beast man at the end. That's all. And served the Lord it's of Chaos. Nice. <laughs> Still counts. That's, that's quite the ending. Quite the ending. <laughs> but uh, what so, games have you run, uh, Josh, besides D&D? Or have you just done D&D? So I've actually only ever done 5e. Uh, recently, it was my first time running 5e. I played it quite a bit. Um, actually, the first time I played it was with you, Keegan. Um, and Brennan, actually. You guys were both in that party. And um, Which party was that? We played... I remember I was a ranger. I think I was a dragonborn ranger. We um, it was I think it was just a one shot we did it just to kind of test out. This, this was right when Five E had just come out. Okay. Yeah, that was my first time playing uh, any of the D and Ds. Before that, I had played I played one of the Warhammer Forty K games, and because I wasn't into the universe, it didn't really appeal to me. That was my first tabletop I'd ever played. Um, and then after that, I got super into the Fantasy Flight Star Wars games. So that was the first time I ever DM'd was in that system as well. Oh yeah. I've I've found Star Wars. I, I tried to set up a campaign for it, but it, it feels really daunting. Like, do you have to know a lot of the deep lore there to run a game in it, or you certainly don't have to? And actually, the system is very good for first-time players. Um, it's very streamlined, and it's got a lot less math than like other systems do. Um, but I mean, the one downside of that is that it has its own dice system. It doesn't use numeric dice. It has symbols and stuff. So there's like an app that they made. It's like it's like two ninety nine, but it's not free, unfortunately. But um, no, it helps though to know the lore. That that was why I DM'd the, my first time there. I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, so I uh, it was very easy to kind of you know just on the top of my head come up with scenarios that were plausible. And so, but it's not required for sure. Because hmm. I remember you were. Uh, it might have been the second game that you were ever involved in me when we did Call of Cthulhu. Oh yeah, the the one that was based on Colorado space, where it's set in uh, what was it rifle or yeah Colorado? Yeah, that was super. That was super fun, and it, uh, that that has its own system, right? That uh, Call of Cthulhu, right? Is the system? Yeah, it's a D one hundred percentile system. Yeah, I liked that system a lot actually. So I thought about doing uh, like other story ideas uh, that I have for like screenplays about testing them there with a one shot because I did like that system quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. No. We. That's good. Um, yeah, that was the one where I think uh, what happened to my character is he interacted with something and aged like thirty years or something, and he was already <laughs> like an old man. Yeah. That was, was it a one shot or? It was a one shot. It was a two shot actually, because it yeah, ran. Yeah, it, it started as a one shot and. And it ran over from there. That was super fun, and uh, yeah, I, I want to see that new uh, Colorado Space movie with Nicolas Cage. I've heard good things about it. Haven't had a chance to see it yet. Yeah, I'm hoping it's good. Yeah, but whenever I when I saw the trailer for it, I just immediately remembered that one shot that you ran or the two shot, and it was super fun. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, the Colorado Space is the that's the Lovecraft story, I believe. Yeah, it's based off of the uh, the short story of the same name. Oh boy. Yeah. It's... Oh, okay. I, I was hearing Colorado space. Oh. Like... <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, no. The color out of space. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was really confused. I'll have to look that one up. Hmm. Yeah, so those are really the, the ones I've played. Um, 
I had a friend who made his own D and D system, just like a homebrew system, and uh, he's still fleshing it out. But it's a it's a uh, like a D six system, so it's kind of weird. But so those are the including his little homebrew one. Those are all the different ones that I've played. Do you have any that you prefer over others for different reasons? Or um, I like Five E, and uh, I feel like it's pretty accessible. But the Star Wars one's my favorite, just because that's the one I've spent the most time in as a DM and as a player, um, because I've been part of two Star Wars campaigns that both ran like two years, and then the one that I ran lasted about a year, and so that's the one I spent the most time in. So that's the one that comes most naturally to me. But um, yeah, and then Five E is super accessible. I like that one too, and uh, I'd like to do some more Call of Cthulhu because that was a fun one to to use and uh, getting used to that D100 system. I'd like to do some more of that, you know? Yeah. I use uh, I use Call of Cthulhu actually as my teaching system for most new people because percentage is very easy to conceptualize, right? Rather than going, all right, you're going to roll this 20-sided die and add this and you want to beat this number, it's, okay, you're going to do this thing, roll under this number in the scale. If it's hard, cut that skill in half. If it's really hard, then it's a fifth of that skill. Yeah, that's pretty intuitive to go in increments like that. Definitely agree with you on that. So, yeah, I just, I like Call of Cthulhu a lot. I'm actually really hyped for uh, Harlem Unbound 2nd uh, Edition to uh, have a printed copy, because that's a, when I think I'll get it. Uh, I might order it earlier just because uh, Chaosium's uh, donating, I think, 30% of the of the proceeds, their proceeds, not the author's proceeds, to uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, other funds like that. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, Harlem Unbound is apparently a game. It's uh, set in Harlem during, like, the Harlem Renaissance in the Call of Cthulhu universe, and it aggressively and thoughtfully... Uh, confronts the racist ideology of Lovecraft while still presenting cosmic horror in an interesting way. That's awesome, because, yeah, I like a lot of the concepts in uh, Lovecraft stories, but I've heard uh, very bad things about him as a person, so I'm glad that that's, uh, you know, being addressed. And well, um, well, Yeah, it's also because, like, it's very difficult to actually uh, remove his racism from some of his themes, that's kind of the big issue. Oh, I didn't know that. That's too bad, but that Harlem game sounds really cool. I'm really glad that exists and that they're donating the proceeds that way. That's really cool. So maybe uh, at some point we'll do like a Harlem Unbound game or something like that for the channel. Uh, uh, that'll be awesome. Very cool. But who knows? I pretty white. Uh, Same here. Not, my, uh, not really my voice that needs to be the champion at this moment. That'd be fun to be a player, though, in that game. As, you know, someone with a little more experience with that, be the be the runner of the game. That could be a really cool experience and uh, have a lot of good conversation there, you know? Yeah, as long as everyone takes it maturely and, you know, you have to, you have to be kind of, you know, accepting of the criticism of yourself, right? So... That's what makes it interesting. Yeah, that's that's key. During during everything that's been going on, I've really just been trying to focus on just listening and you know having that kind of approach to everything of listening and being respectful and letting others whose voices need to be heard do their thing. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, if anyone listening to this is part of, part of any sort of uh, marginalized community in the role playing space, we'd like to have you reach out uh, and get you on the podcast. Uh, Role-playing as a hobby can only get stronger when more voices are heard. Uh, push, uh, absolutely. Especially to pull up, push out the uh, the racist and sexist ones who are kind of permeating the hobby. How, how much of a problem is that? And I know that you have a lot more experience with the the entire hobby and industry here. So is that a, is that a pretty big problem? It's about as big of a problem in the rest of nerd culture. Like, it's... Role-playing tries to sell itself as the most open open and accepting of nerd culture. I mean, nerd culture itself tries to, like, portray itself as open and accepting. But then just, you know, change the race of a single superhero and see how fast that fucking facade just drops. 
or any attempt at like realism, quote unquote, regarding why your fantasy world doesn't have people of color in it when you're, you make up the rules, dude. You make up the world. You don't have to create like a one-to-one analogy for our world. Yeah, and that, the, you know, the older I've gotten, looking back now at Lord of the Rings, that's something that really bothers me is the lack of diversity. Um, but yeah, so in my books, I've really tried to get away from that and uh, the books that I'm writing. Um, and yeah, I'm trying not to have it be that, like you said, that one-on-one real realism, quote unquote. And I think it's fantasy, like have fun. And for me, part of the entertainment value is, um, you know, just having a world that's totally different from our own in better ways, you know, so... I definitely uh, like that there's more fantasy coming out now that has a lot more diversity. I think that's really great. Yeah, and, uh, like, you can be realistic, but, like, be realistic in ways that are at least engaging. Like, uh, me and Brendan talked in the first episode about maybe disease checks. You've lost hit points, and you're in a swamp, so you got to make a check to see if you got a parasite. And that adds, oh, that's cool. that adds something. Yeah. That's awesome. But, and that's that's... Uh, quote unquote realism it adds a level of grit to it but you know it adds a level of grit that is engaging for everyone at the table and is an exclusionary exactly that's a good way to put it where it's it's uh yeah it, it heightens the stakes in a way that still keeps things interesting and it doesn't push anyone out or it's inclusive to everyone you know so that's awesome uh so let's see so, Josh, working in Hollywood and being able to work on uh, movie sets and writing and doing screenplays and submitting those, and uh, I know that you have an IMDb page, even. Uh, I do. <laughs> what? Is, uh, how do you think that has influenced how you run games, how you write for games, and how you generate NPCs for games? Well, really... Um... You know, I, I don't know that it's directly affected that as much. I just try to always, you know, tell interesting stories that make people think and uh, that get them involved in caring about the characters that are there. So um, really, I just try to give characters uh, kind of, you know, unique ways of um, I try to think of what the characters interests are and let that kind of dictate how I portray them to the group. Um so yeah, I'm just kind of approaching it to a lot of the other screenwriters I've talked to and then directors, you know, just about making the characters feel real and that gets players drawn into the game. So that's kind of my approach to it. Okay. Okay. How do you... I got... So I, I've been trying to do this as well. It's trying to create sympathetic characters that the players like, but who are wrong about something and that being wrong about something could lead to ruin while the players still like them. Have you, uh, have you any experience of making characters like that and, uh, how successful have you been? Yeah. Um, I actually recently, the most recent session I had for the, uh, 5e game that I ran, um, due to people going back to work, we haven't had a session in a couple weeks and so I haven't been able to connect with those players yet, but I did that where I had a character who, um, I made him treat the group very kindly. Uh, you know, he gave them some stuff, you know, he was very supportive of them. And then I had another character say, Hey, this guy's nice to you, but he's actually, you know, terrorizing this other group nearby in the town. And I was trying to get them to like confront him on it. To, and uh, they, the players didn't really bite. Unfortunately, they just kind of ran from the issue and didn't do anything. So that was a little disappointing. It's something I'd like to do more in the future of, creating that where a character that they like is doing something wrong and they have to figure out how they're going to work with that. So when uh, you run into that situation where players don't bite on a hook or a detail that you want, um, do you let it sit until they bite it or do you build on it? Um, Sometimes I do either or yeah, with this one, because it's been a little while and I'm not sure if we'll be able to, get these same players back. I'm not, I think I'd like to push them to confront it more, but um, in the past, there's been times I've kind of let it go and other times where I've tried to keep redirecting the group back towards it. Maybe if they don't bite, you know, kind of having the same issue with different characters later on, if that's something that the game needs. So. Okay. I'd heard a system. I think it was web DM, but don't quote me on that. Uh, who did a system for story hooks that if a player, uh, Players avoid a hook or they choose a different hook. You roll a d20 
And if it comes up a certain number, then the hook's still there, un untampered with. If it comes up another number, uh, it's partially dealt with and you can join a different adventuring party to kind of finish off the adventure and become at least supporting characters to help with that. Uh, one where it gets mild, it's fully taken care of. You don't get anything from it. And then one where it gets slightly worse and then like another one where that like that villain succeeded and like maybe they summoned Orcus. That's I like that having the randomness to see what the consequences of the group not uh, addressing the issue is. That's pretty cool. I like that. And that helps make the world feel kind of real and let them feel like there's other adventuring parties out there. Yeah, in the in the game I'm running, and again, hopefully I can get those same players to go back into it. But uh, yeah, this this uh, you know uh, prince who's about to become the king of this city, he. Uh, They've had like a lot of issues with bandits in their territory, so he's getting ready to execute a bunch of bandits, but some of them were just affiliated with the bandits but didn't actually do any crimes. So I was really trying to get the group to try to persuade him or, you know, sabotage him and stop him from doing that. And so, but they just kind of, uh, the group decided to be selfish and run from the problem. So not, not ideal, not ideal, but. Not ideal. Um, mine are still very much in his corner and because his goals are, good goals. It's just that, you know, there is some confrontation there of how he's going about it. And so now they have to weigh whether his his methods match his goals, if what he's doing is wrong enough to make them try and question him, etc. like that. So Nice, that's awesome. The idea of there being potentially no right answers. That's that's a cool element to add in to where there's that kind of uncertainty in that not necessarily ambiguity, but, you know, that, that adds a lot of realism there, so that's really cool. Uh, yeah, and Werewolf, uh, despite you being nine-foot-tall killing machines that can jump into the spirit world, tends to lend itself a little better to realism, I think, than D&D uh, &D in places. But D&D &D relies heavily on tropes as well. Right, which some, can sometimes be helpful if you are trying to find a quick encounter or do something, but... I find for the more complex stuff or the bigger story arcs, I like to kind of homebrew it from there so it doesn't feel as tropey, you know? No, that makes sense. Uh, kind of, Can you give us a good example of one of your homebrews that you did to make something more morally complex in your world of D&D? Um, that most recent one is uh, the one that I was talking about where I had this, uh, the party goes to this town. They have their own kind of main quests that they're looking into. Uh, basically, they got framed for murder, so they're trying to figure out um, who framed them and why. Um, but when they went into that town, I added that subplot of the, the recent banditry and this young prince taking over. Um, so that was one where I wanted him to be really cool and because uh, the, the group had to fight some bandits. So he made sure that he helped recoup their losses and was super supportive and gave him like, you know, a free room at the inn while they're in town and just seemed like a really cool guy. But then I started, you know, feeding them hooks that, okay, he's actually being, you know, really like iron fist with these bandits and he's probably killing people that don't need to be killed and um, trying to get them to uh, deal with that conflict, but they, they wouldn't really bite on that. So that's the most recent one I can think of. In Star Wars, when I ran games there, there wasn't too much moral ambiguity, you know, the, the, the party was rebels, so they were fighting the Empire. It was pretty, you know, not super, I didn't really get to any place where I got to explore any really complicated moral situations. It was more kind of adventures and the party figuring out what kinds of rebels do they want to be? Do they want to be more more militant or more like sabotaging towards the Empire? Stuff like that. So, I mean, the, the, there's a place for lack of moral ambiguity as well, certainly. So, I mean, that that that's all part of escapism. Exactly. So, like, in, in some games, it's, it's there. But, uh, no, this most recent one, this uh, the, the most recent 5e game I did... The setting is one that I've had for a while, and uh, I revisited it after a couple of years of not really writing in that fictional world. And so this time I didn't want to have more analysis of, you know, a little more complexity with, uh, basically it's a continent where a lot of people are shipwrecked from, from other lands. And then there's like the indigenous peoples and I'm kind of exploring the the tensions there and how people are just claiming parts of the continent and not giving them their due. So I wanted to kind of have those more, you know, mature and uh, upfront discussions and looking back at kind of our history and all the things we've screwed up in the past. So 
Oh, certainly. You, you got to be careful and not get allegorical with that. Otherwise, you become bright, though. Uh. <laughs> right. So that's where I've been trying to push myself as a writer and, you know, just explore that, but in a, in a careful and respectful way, you know. Uh, if you go to the Facebook page, uh, I did share an article about uh, the decolonization of Dungeons and Dragons you might like for your setting. I will absolutely check that out. Definitely. And one of the important facets is uh, cultures meet, but and they 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 meet, they share ideas and things like that, and they are not always violent. And cultures of uh, different peoples coming together is not always violent, and you should be cognizant of that when world building. Definitely, I yeah, know I like that because it's yeah, you want to strike a balance and not dive too deep into the allegory or yeah, definitely. I'm gonna read that article. Thanks. Yeah, certainly. Let's see. You got anything, Brennan? Uh, just observation that like when you get things like Star Wars, it, I, I feel like Star Wars is more classic fantasy, like big evil empire defeat the bad guys. And I, I'm a fan of moral ambiguity. I just I'm very bad at it, so I'm working to get better at that. But oh, that'd be a good question. Do you guys have any suggestions for how someone can improve on that front? Yes. Um. What you do is you you create two bad scenarios that are bad in different ways of how a situation can come about. And it's their, their choice of how that works. Uh, an example in a werewolf one was uh, there was a, there was this basically mega pharmacy company that are sell it, that are letting opioids escape intentionally and kind of letting it permeate throughout the state. And if they went to the news and blew the cover on this, another company, which are both actually owned by the same uh, company, would sweep in and start helping fund police with their weaponry and things like that, and it would basically supercharge the war on drugs. So the drugs that are being sold are slightly tainted so that someone could become a Fomori. One in, one in 10,000 to one in 100,000 could become uh, direct servants of the Great Corruptor. Is that, worth, yeah, so is that worth expanding the police state? That's that's a good uh, conundrum to put the players in because I don't know what I'd do. That's a, I, 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 I like how you said uh, it's putting them between two um, unwanted outcomes and having them decide. That's a good way to do it because increasing moral ambiguity and hooking the players in is something I want to keep growing in. So I'm really glad you said that. That's really cool. I think that's I certainly think that's step one. Step one is creating two bad ones. Like it'll solve a problem, but it will cause another. And so now you have to decide whether the problem is worth solving through the, through the means that you currently have. Well put. Well put. And if they don't like both, give them an option to, to find another way outside of the parameters of the adventure, but they have to be made aware that the situation then will not change until they find that other solution. And then the other one is... Uh, once you get good at that, for me, what it is then is you create a situation where there are two good outcomes, but one favors a different group more than the other. So let's say one favors an enemy nation more than anyone, but it prevents mass killing. So it favors this other nation, and that other nation is probably going to, in the future, undercut your goals... But those people are also, the, the average everyday people in that nation are suffering more. So you will alleviate their suffering in both cases. But you will be able to create more opportunities for those people who have been struggling for it more. Or do you help your nation more and your nation has not been historically struggling as much? That's a good one. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And it has to be handled with grace and things like that. You can't be too heavy-handed. You have to let them find the clues on their own. Yeah, a lot of players want to feel successful, like they were able to kind of save the day a lot of times, so that's important. 
Yeah, and so don't don't hammer these home all the time either. That's the important thing. They have to have victories. But when you create moral ambiguity like that, then it becomes a game where players and their characters can question what their motives are, which can provoke good role-playing. Definitely, definitely. That's a, That kind of makes me think about, um, you know, with a lot of players, you know, teaching them the mechanics of the game isn't too hard usually, but getting them comfortable role-playing, that can be tough. Like, I love playing with Brennan. He's always really good at role-playing, and um, a lot of my players, though, it takes them a while to kind of get in that comfort zone. What are some recommendations you have for getting players to open up and really embrace their character and not to have, you know, a character that seems, uh, you know, like kind of, you know, boring or tropey or anything to have like an interesting complex character. What's some advice you have for that? Well, the first one would actually be, I'd say if they're new, let them lean into the trope, let them lean into the trope and use that trope in fiction to lead them to interesting scenarios. Uh, okay. Uh, they 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 want to play that character, right? People want to play the characters that they've made. They've seen fiction. They've read books. They want to be that person. Uh, there's some that don't fit well in the game, and that's totally fine to say, hey, this doesn't fit in the game. Like, let's say, a lone wolf character who wants to stay a lone wolf. Right. But uh, if you do things like, hey, I want to be like the Han Solo type who knows everyone, then you start feeding them things. It's like, hey, this contact from back in the day has reached out to you. They want to do this. You create an interesting scenario. And then part of it is on you as the, the Iotis is on you as the dungeon master for you to just go for it. Use the voices, use the hand gestures, get really into the character uh, that is presented before them so that you show them that you are not afraid to look foolish. Awesome. That's good advice. Yeah, that, that helped with my uh, with that last 5e game I ran. All the players, it was their first time playing. So I made sure to do some accents and have some characters that were kind of eccentric and uh, just lean into those roles. And that did help out with their uh, role playing a little bit. So, mm. Yeah, the number I one. Find... Oh, go ahead, Bren. Oh, I was going to say, I, I find too, uh, doing a session zero to kind of gauge where what sort of game everybody wants to play. Or, like Egan said, like if they have a vision in their head of what they want that character to be, it's definitely fine to ask them like where they see that character going because it might change, but at least they have a heading heading out. Or um, I had something else in my head and I lost it. <laughs> it's uh, all good. But, oh. uh, but no, that's, that's a good... I like the idea of the session zero kind of in addition to character development, just talking about hey, guys, like, what are you looking for? And I, I assume that gets easier and more experienced players to think about uh, what kind of tone of game they want and stuff like that, so. Mm. And that tone can inform the, the player, too. Yeah, or, or inform the character. Or you as a DM come up and go, I want to play this kind of game. This is the tone. This is the kind of story feel I'm going for. Are you interested? And if there's a big, like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm all about that, then you're probably going to get more role-playing out of them versus a, eh, I want to be involved. Yeah, definitely. So that's what my uh, my dream game is kind of a homebrew one and none of my friends have bitten. So I'm like, okay, it probably won't ever happen, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. Uh, do you want to keep your dream game secret or can you tell us about it? Oh, no. So I actually, I haven't, I've, I've been debating with myself for a long time about what mechanics I'd like to use, but I would love to do a game where, you know, and I'm flexible on how the characters get into it, but just where I can just do like a bunch of like crossovers and tie-ins from a bunch of fictional universes that I'm a fan of, that my players are a fan of. So like Star Wars, Marvel, Lord of the Rings, just Halo, a bunch of just weird different things all smashed together. I'd love to, lately I've thought about it less, but for a while I really wanted to find a way to do that using either the the fantasy flight genesis system which i haven't really played that one yet but it's very similar to the star wars one and it's you can kind of set it in any setting you want so that that's my dream game but no one else is interested in it <laughs> besides me so <laughs> that's gotta be the hardest part uh, uh, keegan uh told me a while back is uh i don't know where the saying is from but it's if if you want to play your game you have uh, like your dream game to play in you have to be the dm Otherwise, it doesn't work. 
Yeah, and that's kind of the <laughs> is I'd love to play in that too, but none of my friends would run it, so it's like, oh well. But that's why I end up running so many uh, different systems, and I, I start reading the book. I'm like, oh, I'd love to play in this. <laughs> and then you end up being the one having to having to run it for everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> but overall, I prefer running anyway. But yeah, just so many books. Like man, like I'd love to be inspired to run Mage. I, just every time I run, I read Mage. To like come up with a story to actually run mages the ascension my brain just goes this is great uh, and it just stops <laughs> yep yep i know the feeling but yeah being a player is fun being a dm is fun uh, they're both satisfying in different ways so i don't really have a preference between the two but yeah no i definitely there there is that conundrum of when you want to play a game you end up <laughs> being the one running it so hmm. What sort of systems have you thought about trying to get into, but you just haven't had the uh, the buy-in from others, or you just haven't picked up the books yet? Like, are there any RPG books outside of like D and D, Star Wars, or anything like that that you've seen or heard about, and you're just like, man, I'd really like to get in on some of that. Uh, really, the only one that jumps to mind is because uh, mainly it's a time constraint thing for me, <laughs> just not having the time to play. But you mentioned one; I think it was. Pugmire or something where it's like uh, all the player races are like you know animals like dogs and cats and stuff we talked about that the last time I was in Colorado and that sounded really fun okay yeah I mean you could probably get into that one simply because it's a uh, it's a it's a modified version of D&D 5e oh really yep so that's cool so. nice I'll check that out that'll, that'll be an easy uh, easy learning curve it's just a modification of that yeah, it's very simple. Level caps at 10, you get max HP per level up. Oh, okay. Interesting. No, I just, I love the the setting there. That it just struck me as really unique and fun. So that's what drew me into it, you know? Yeah, uh, I think the phone PDF is still free on uh, DriveThruRPG, so. Well, I will look into that. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, let's see. Have you ever thought? I recently. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go Sorry. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's all you. Oh, I was gonna say I. Uh, I pushed the limits of my uh, role playing as a DM in that recent campaign. I tried to have a an interesting character that was like uh, a little halfling that had like Tourette's syndrome, so just cursing all the time just to make it fun. But uh, I don't know. I just I realized I was like, oh, this feels weird to keep role playing that. So that was kind of my limit for <laughs> for going out of my comfort zone. <laughs> Yeah, that's. But I like I like the concept of a tiny halfling that was just cursing all the time, you know, under a shawl, hiding it, and that was fun. <laughs> yeah, welcome back, Brandon. All right, wrong button. <laughs> um, uh, oh, go ahead, Brandon. Uh, call me uh, a halfling racist, but I think them cursing all the time is hilarious. Like, and a, and a good idea. They should all curse all the time. Yeah, it's fun. But as a role player, I was like, oh, I, I don't curse this much in real life. So it felt a little weird, but it was still fun. Uh, another player in this recent campaign that I liked a lot, an NPC that I had was uh, um, this character. I made him like kind of like the spokesman for the town. And he was like just super obnoxiously, like super into the town and super proud of it. And he just annoyed the characters. And I had fun playing that as well, you know? Nice. I had this halfling uh, ethnicity, actually. There was a specific group of halflings in my world who were different from other ones in that they, their native language, all the words were short. So they were able to get ideas across very rapidly. So when they spoke common, they had to speak really fast because the slow pace made them feel uncomfortable. Oh, that's really cool. That's a really cool concept. I like that. Huh. And so they'd be like, tall words for tall people. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's really cool. Little quirky things like that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's something I've been trying to constantly push myself to add more and more, just to make the experience more memorable for my players. Just had the little quirks, little unique things, you know. Like that one character, Howwin, who's always the the town spokesman. I made him to where whenever he's talking to people from the town, though, and not talking to outsiders, that he always gives their names wrong. I thought that was a fun fun quirk to add in there. Nice. I had a character. That's really cool. I had a character in Exalted, uh, a friend of mine, Matt, was running it, and he was a zenith, and he was like this grizzled old, like, warlord priest, and, like, he was sitting at the table, and 
getting ready for negotiations and the other person's like one of the other players was like hey we can just kick their ass we're gods and my character just turned at him grabbed him by the back of the head smashed his face into the table and then screamed in pure rage cooler heads must prevail <laughs> that's awesome and so he was played as a hothead diplomat who would be completely cool and level-headed when he did his diplomatic work and then was just a hothead in the, the battlefield and like took undue risks and things like that that is awesome to give the characters kind of that kind of you know competing elements to who they are it adds complexity and makes it more memorable that's fantastic when you're making uh, characters or NPCs, Josh, do you uh, do that sort of thing? Or uh, how do you come up with your ideas for your different various characters? Um, yes, yeah, that's what I try to do is I try to think of like something about them that uh, just makes them unique, just something to make them stick out to the players. And then I kind of try to think about what that person's what that person cares about. Those are that's kind of what my starting area for it, you know, that's a good one. I need to do that more often. Shoot. <laughs> that's that's kind of what I do when I'm writing characters for like screenplays too and novels. Just trying to think about, you know, what their uh, what their values are because that, that really dictates how people are to a certain extent is what you value in others and what you want yourself to be. So that's kind of where I where I start when I'm writing. So it's a good place to start. <laughs> but then sometimes you know some NPCs are just kind of they're functional to the story and the setting. So. Um, then sometimes it's just good to add some kind of quirk just to make them stand out. But otherwise they're not super, I don't get too in depth with their emotions or their backstory and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you do, how do you deal with on the spot NPCs that your players end up liking and they have to become more complex NPCs? Well, this could be indicative that I need to get better at writing NPCs, but it hasn't happened too much where it's a kind of a basic NPC that they get attached to. Um, mainly it's the NPCs that I get pretty um, excited about that end up being the ones the characters like or respond to a lot. And that's probably because my role playing is just better thought out and uh, I kind of have a game plan for them. So um, those incidental NPCs, I haven't had too many where they become, you know, big important parts where it's an NPC that I didn't expect the group to latch onto, you know? Okay. Uh, you also probably don't have players who ask for everyone's name. You stole my question. No question. <laughs> I sure don't. <laughs> so when when you're uh, naming your NPCs, do you have like the baker, or do you like if they, if they like come across, you know where they're gonna go, so you write down, oh, this there'll be this person, or do you like write a name, like oh, his name, his or her name, blah blah blah. Um, like, so when I'm planning out like some big, bigger NPCs, I'll actually think of a name and get more in the backstory there. But yeah, usually when it's like incidental NPCs, you know, it'll be the bartender or the, the town guard captain. And then if my characters ask for a name, I'll make one up on the spot, um, which I'm, I'm decent at just coming up with fantasy sounding names. That hasn't been too much of an issue and, or Star Wars sounding names. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a little harder for uh, werewolf when it's like, hey. These are supposed to be real-world names. Oh, yeah, you'll be like, that guy's named Tom. And then they're like, your last person was named Tom. You'll be like, there's two Toms. It happens, you know? <laughs> Frank. Frank. Lots of Franks. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, so my favorite NPC name that my friend came up with uh, off the cuff was Bobbert for, like, this kind of bumbling, you know, guy. And I thought that was pretty fun. So, Boblin the Goblin. No, it was a it was a Star Wars game, so it was just a guy named Bobbit, and right. it, it was funny. So, uh, yeah, there's I've had that. Uh, one of the things I got in the habit for I haven't had to do it as much recently is I would pre-generate about ten to fifteen names and just cross the name off. That's a good method. I might I might use that. That's good. What would you say is your favorite aspect of tabletop role-playing games? What's the thing that draws you to it the most? I'd have to say the social component. 
Sorry for that background noise. My, my roommate's making dinner. <laughs> gotcha. But no, I, I think it's a social component where it's, um, I mean, obviously I also really enjoy the, the freedom to storytell and explore ideas and really do whatever you want. Essentially it's fairly limitless within the, you know, guidelines of the system, but uh, the social aspect, getting to do with other people and having that interaction, it has a lot of depth and it makes it a lot more, um, it just makes it a lot more fulfilling than like, you know, video games and stuff. I, uh, I really prefer D and D because of the, and role-playing just because of the social component and getting to really bounce your ideas back and forth off your friends and stuff. I do find that, uh, when you role-play with people, you do end up becoming closer friends or less closest friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you get to see a lot more of who they are than how they play characters and stuff. So it is very, uh, very illuminating for sure. Yeah, I remember the uh, the weasel fucker that uh, was on your Facebook. The the one who basically tried to make like really horrid justifications for horrid shit, and then you mentioned how he role plays. I'm like, I think that's just who he is as a person. Oh yes, I uh, yeah, that uh, that is certainly illuminating. So not in a good way. <laughs> Those poor weasels. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Look, it, you can just mix any sort of uh, stout and a curse word, and you have a brand new insult. I think you mean stout. I do mean stout. Take that back about my stouts. <laughs> yes, how dare you insult the stouts? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they, are, they are sacred. You know, ferret weasel, or ferret fucker, uh, weasel, weasel dick, like... Actually, these are good. I'm going to let my NPCs start using some of these. <laughs> they are unique. When you learn how to... Uh, little known fact, the better you are at combining curse words, the more the better you are at combining weird attributes to create monsters in D&D. Makes sense that those uh, skill sets will go hand in hand. <laughs> oh, th- that begs the question, though. I don't know the weasel fucker story, um, but... Uh, at the table, how do you deal with uh, people or players being uncomfortable or if one player crosses a line that uh, is too far for you? Like, do you set parameters at the beginning? Do you just call stuff out as it happens? Well, when I the, the two times I've DM'd, it hasn't really been an issue because all the players have been pretty, uh, pretty like-minded and relaxed people, so it hasn't really been an issue. There's been a few times as a player... Nothing jumps out at me specifically, but a few times where it's just, uh, you know, I've just kind of not been super into the direction or how the other players were playing their character. And I just kind of, you know, it took me kind of out of the zone, but I didn't really, I wasn't the DM, so I didn't feel that it was enough that I needed to bring it up or address it. But I mean, yeah, I think, I think that's a fallacy in the hobby. And I'm actually glad you said something about that is uh, if you are uncomfortable as a player, you should probably go to the DM and just go, hey, man. They're doing these things and they're making me uncomfortable. Can I, I can drop out of the game or we can address this as adults, but you know, it's gotta be one or the other. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. And um, thankfully enough of times that has happened, I've been able to, well, the few times it's happened, I should say, um, it didn't really fit the universe that the story was in. So I was able to kind of uh, bring that up but like when i the first time i ever tried playing an rpg was uh warhammer 40k mm-hmm. i believe one of the the weasel fuckers that you mentioned earlier was in the game and uh I, I just can't get into that universe it's too dark and it's just weird so um i i played a couple sessions and i just kind of dropped out of the game because i wasn't super comfortable as a player you know no that makes sense and that's that's your right to do no uh no RPGing is better than bad RPGing and being forced to deal with uh, situations you're uncomfortable with. Well said. Well said. I completely agree. But uh, yeah, no, it, I'm glad you haven't come up with uh, bumped into anything. But it's always good to uh, just reach out to the players because they might be doing what you did right and just keeping it keeping it in. So you might want to. At some point, just ask direct questions. Hey, is everyone having a good time? And if everyone's like enthusiastically nodding, you know, you're good. If someone seems taken aback, don't call them out. Just, you know, send a private message going, hey, I just want to check if you are okay, you know, like a friend. Yeah, that's that's good. And especially as I get better at, like we've talked about, having scenarios that are a little more morally ambiguous or getting into some darker settings and themes, 
um, letting them know up front, hey, they, even at this, you know, session zero saying, hey, if you guys ever, you know, just kind of setting the, the etiquette of saying, you guys can bring it up to me one-on-one or in the group if you don't like where something's going, you know, open door policy as a DM, just kind of having that communication and checking in with them one-on-one later. I think that'll be really helpful to make sure everyone feels included and that their voices heard and respected, you know? Yeah, uh, Monty Cook Games, uh, the people who made uh, Numenera, I believe, they have a book uh, that's for free. It's about 20 to 30 pages uh, called Consent in Gaming, and it talks about how to address those things. Uh, some of them are uh, specific things I wouldn't personally use, like the uh, the checkbox thing, unless it was like at a con game, where it's like, hey, here are all these scenarios. Put a X for green for we're good with this, yellow for it's okay if it's not described in detail or happens off screen, red is a hard no. And it has that in the back of the, the, uh, the book for you to just print out and hand to people, which is useful for uh, when you're playing with people you don't know or if you're at a con game. But, uh, and, but for me, I prefer the, the sessions here. That's my tool of choice and doing open door policies and being very serious in saying, hey, this is what I'm, I want to explore. These are the topics that might get touched by this story exploration. If you have any problems with these subjects right now, just speak up and I will take them out of the game. If you think you're good with these, and it turns out when we get to that subject matter that you are not, then we have this rule in place, you know, that where you can tap something or do something. It's it's a little more difficult to online. I'm still trying to figure out how to do it online. Uh, to just tap and automatically we just stop. We let everyone cool down. And then we skip that piece and we don't address it. That's a really good system. And I'm actually jealous of your DMing skills that you've actually gotten to where those come into play. Because I think, you know, for mine, like, we haven't really touched on anything too... Uh, you know, that could be uncomfortable. So that's pretty cool. That you're exploring, uh, you know, a lot of a range of topics and complex issues. So that's a really good system to have it where everyone feels safe and, you know, they can kind of tap out whenever they need to or really uh, keep everyone comfortable. I like that a lot. I think it's a DM fallacy and I've certainly fallen on a bit fallacy. Like it's taken years of running to kind of pick that up is uh, sometimes what you think is, you know, morally unambiguous or you know shouldn't be uncomfortable for someone can still be uncomfortable for someone uh that can can oh absolutely so i think these are skill sets any dm anywhere should just pick up and start you know trying to incorporate yeah definitely and i I like that you said uh you know sometimes with if it's a group you know better just kind of reading the room or having you know side conversations to check in on people is important and then with players you don't know as well having something more structured like a checklist that's that's really cool i think i'm going to start incorporating that into my games as well that's awesome yeah i'll I'll get i'll get with you after this to get the info for that book so i can have it (laughs) yeah sure no no worries Um, awesome but yeah i just these are things I've been talking about and tr- been trying to really ingrain with a lot of people in the community. Because uh, I, I used to be, I, I was an offender as well. I, did, I didn't know better. That's not an excuse. That's an explanation. And, you know, there are people who don't want to play with me anymore because I did push some boundaries. And they are well within their rights to not want to play anymore. That's, uh, that's really mature that you're recognizing that. And I think that's a really awesome... Uh thing to advocate for and i'm gonna certainly implement it and also spread the word about that because you know everyone deserves to, to game comfortably and in a in a safe space you know yeah just you know respect absolutely absolutely <sighs> all right josh it's getting towards the end of the evening awesome this has been really fun guys thanks for having me on Absolutely. Uh, is there any place that you want to plug on social media or anything like that for the viewers to find you on, ask questions, or follow you? Uh, yeah, if anyone wants to follow me, it's uh, J Lindquist. That's spelled L-I-N-D-Q-U-I-S-T-B-P on Twitter. Uh, that's kind of where I post any projects I'm working on. And uh, yeah, uh, and then I'm on Facebook, Josh Lindquist, uh, and Instagram, also Josh Lindquist. Thanks for letting me do the plug. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, man. 
Yeah, you guys are great so much. And I can't wait to listen to this podcast and uh, check out all the things we've talked about. That's really cool. Perfect. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, I'm Keegan, and I was joined by my lovely assistant, Brennan. Hi. And we're a bunch of gamers. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Podbean. We're on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you won't, we got a Facebook group where I post memes, post everything that's here, updates for the channel, but you'll never find me on Twitter. I find that place a cesspool. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. See you guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, hey. beard look.